Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Comero, and I'm recording this a little bit later than I typically do. Usually I record the day after games during the regular season or the night after a game and then release it the following morning. I am recording this a little bit later because I am back to square one. Without a co-host, obviously you can hear I'm recording solo. So if you want to help me out during uh, the ACC tournament, during the NCAA tournament, let me know. Because uh, that is what will make this the best for the rest of the season in terms of if there's at least a bit of a two-way thing going on. Or you know what? All I need right now um, is a soundboard. For the future, I welcome anyone who's willing to do anything, who is who's motivated to do anything. But for now, just in order to have a quality recording and not talk to a computer, just reach, reach out to me. Reach out to me. The requirements are slim to none except for just show up on Skype when we schedule. And that's pretty much it. So, uh, And I will record something, uh, kind of a mini episode uh, talking a little bit more about what's going on with the pod for the future, or the possibilities, because all I can say is that I pour my heart and soul into this. I've done so for years. If you enjoy it, support it now. Show that you are willing to support it. It's not even money. It's just write a review. It takes two seconds, and that will at least show me something because... Uh, Right now, it's making me, again, I'll say I'm recording, uh, I'll record a mini-ep soon, describing more detail, but right now, it's tough to imagine in the future, if if Duke fans won't support this level of quality, then then it's tough to imagine a legit future, but there's nothing more I would rather do than this, officially, as a career. Just keep that in mind. It's not a threat, not an ultimatum. It's just what life is. You got to support what is worth it. And I do everything possible. So I'm not sure what more I could do. If you And either way, question, comment, co-host, inquiry, anything. Reach out at DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail. That's that's it. I don't want to. I don't want to waste any more time with that. So Duke, uh, they beat uh, Virginia. I mean, I'm sorry. They lost to Virginia and they beat NC State in the revenge game against NC State. After Carolina, I will, I will uh, in the, in the F following Carolina, I will include a lot more stuff about kind of. I, w- I was thinking about really breaking it down for Duke's struggle to find a consistent third score and that involves a lot of player skill sets and being put in the right positions and all that uh there's another subject about like when what parts of the game is duke best and again a little bit of bracketology and acc tournament stuff and just a whole bunch of stuff that there is some of it i could have put in this but since i am recording this a bit later and I'm not sure if I could fit that in before North Carolina. It's better to just kind of do it after, along with North Carolina. All right, so in the ACC tournament, there is uh, eight scenarios in terms of seeding possibilities. But in six of them, Duke ends up the number four seed. Really, all you need to know is the two scenarios that could happen that will end up with Duke not the number four seed. They will be number two and co-champs if Duke beats UNC and Boston College beats Florida State and Louisville beats Virginia. And that would make FSU the number three seed. So I put uh, Duke on FSU side of the bracket. I think that would mean Louisville would be uh, the number one seed and Duke and Louisville would be co-champs. The other possibility is number three seed if Duke beats UNC. If Florida State beats Boston College and Louisville beats Virginia. And that would Yeah, that would that, that would be Louisville the number the number two seed across from number three seed Duke. So again, Duke will be the number two. So that was a unnecessarily complicated. Bottom line, they need to beat UNC. So should Duke start Jack White, Javin Deloria, and Justin Robinson against UNC for senior night? I would say yes. 
I, I don't think it's a question. Even if it's just for the first, till like the first dead ball, I think you got it. I don't think it's because of what I assume many will say is uh, the common reason that UNC is not as good this season. So, yo, no, there's nothing to worry about. Not now, no. This is like <laughs> the crazy thing about UNC right now is like, what does it actually mean if I said that like they're like the most lethal 13 and 17 team that's ever existed? I don't even know what that means. I don't think it's even possible for them to get, like, one bye in the ACC tournament. And yet, at worst, I would say, like, they remind me of going up against, like, a really dangerous, like, a one seed going up against an eight seed in the NCAA tournament. I'm not even saying Duke is worthy of a one seed right now. I'm not saying Carolina is worthy of an eight seed, but I'm just saying it has that type of feeling. Like, Carolina is dangerous. Like, they finally got everyone healthy. Brandon Robinson, man, that guy can shoot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Cole Anthony is Cole Anthony. Now he has a little bit of help. They have a little bit of spacing. So they're finally starting to show hints of what they uh, kind of... I don't know, the ceiling, maybe, that was offered at the beginning of the season before everything went wrong. Uh, so Duke right now, uh, so if you want to know exactly kind of how statistically they have done in in the calendar year of 2020, they're actually ranked like number 55 in Bartorvik versus top 75 teams in the calendar year with a 4-5 and five record. So it's a good thing Kansas and Michigan State were played, at least statistically. Though even after adding those two games, Duke remains number 32 against uh, top 75 teams overall. So, I mean, that's the dangerous thing about not having a whole bunch of games against uh, top teams to give yourself more cracks at it. There just haven't been many. So when uh, were they 1-2 against the real top of the top in 2020 against uh, Louisville, against Florida State, Louisville, Florida State, and... Is it Virginia? Because Virginia's not even ranked that high. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, the bottom line, there just haven't been that many cracks at it. So, yeah, I mean, Duke, the name of Duke is going to automatically make everyone feel like they should be higher up. But at the, And at the same time, it's a year in which once you get past the first couple teams like Baylor, Gonzaga, and Kansas then who knows? I mean, you got a lot of interesting teams that I think we're still not quite sold on because of various aspects to their strength of schedule. But they're good teams nonetheless. But it's it's kind of, it's not, it doesn't have that same blue-collar team or blue-blood I'm definitely not blue collar, blue blue blood uh, aspect to it. So it's an interesting year. It's a very interesting year, but it just goes to show that even Duke, with its struggles at times, they still have a chance to uh, be like a two seed. Right now, I think in the bracket matrix, they're like a number three. I think they're the the top number three seed, something like that. So if they have a good ACC tournament, they'll jump up to number two. Maybe even a hope for a number one. But it's just that type of year. Alright, so here's some uh here's some here's some quality vibes to think about just in terms of Duke has been up and down, so let's miss, let's kind of give you something to hold your hat on for why you should be happy about how Duke has responded to various circumstances this season. When Duke competed in the 2K Classic at MSG earlier on, Georgetown played Texas in the 7 o'clock game while Duke played Cal at 9.30 before the two teams faced off at 7 o'clock the next day. That's tough. That's tough. I mean, with a young team, I mean, less than 24 hours later, the previous team, they're they're all rested up. I know Duke kind of rolled Cal, but at the same time, it's not easy. Coming off the uh, Stephen F. Austin loss, 
Cassius gets injured early on at Winthrop. Kay calls in all the troops, who adapted to a small bow opponent and came out on top. To face adversity, you're coming off a, a win that everyone in the country sports-wise, not just college basketball-wise, is talking about, ended a incredibly historic streak at home. And now you lost one of your best players, Cassius Stanley. They found a way. Tuesday, December 3rd, Duke beat Michigan State on the road in a 9.30 p.m. game without Cassius. Then on Friday, traveled to a hot-at-the-time Virginia Tech team who basically had just been chilling since returning from Hawaii over a week prior. Cassius tried to come back too early and only made it through a few minutes, so Kay made some big-time second-half changes early on after the break to match up against a different kind of small ball team. Again, these are just this is adversity they're facing, and they rose to the challenge. UNC, this is as emotional a game as I can imagine, at least one that's played early on in February, and Duke had to immediately mentally and physically recover for a tough Saturday to Monday turnaround. While the offense was mostly a disaster in that game, the defense was absolutely on point, and Duke picked up a huge win against a fantastic FSU team who definitely remembered I would assume, the Cam Reddish bomb in the ACC final from last year and definitely wanted revenge. So, I mean, after that UNC game, to, to come back strong, to at least be ready to fight on defense, really good effort there. NC State. So NC State played at home on noon on Saturday. They beat Pitt. Duke played at UVA on Saturday at 6 o'clock. And you think about that kind of mind mash of how it is to go against UVA, the tough loss, the three-hour ride back to Durham, and the pressure of losing three out of four games while State, not without its own pressure on the bubble, but still just gets to kind of chill until Monday before taking the uh, obviously long road trip to Duke's campus. And Just kidding, it's always like 20 minutes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these are just some situations where when Duke has faced, like, big-time adversity, or I don't know if you want to call it big-time, just, like, adversity, they've stepped up. So I think they're a little more mentally tough than some would like to admit. I think some of these post-game quotes, I don't know what Cade does with these mind games that, that he plays. Sometimes I think he overreacts to some stuff that's not worth it. Sometimes I think he he... Says it's not a big deal when it should be. I mean, it's all about what he wants his players to feel about what he's saying. He doesn't care what the media thinks or what I think about what what he's saying. If it's right, if it's wrong, if it's crazy, it doesn't matter because, bottom line, he can he can say stuff like it's almost like he he wrapped a West Side Connection bow down when talking about how. Uh, well, if you're going to uh, if you're going to question me, make sure uh, you look up at the banners at Cameron, and and kind of recognize that, and don't ever question the players. And it's like, all right, dude. I mean, look, I have a hundred percent respect for Kay. Never ever do I not make that very clear. And the respect is through the roof in terms of what he's done. And what he represents. At the same time, he's a basketball coach. And I don't rip him. I question stuff. And I'll and I'll say why I'm questioning it. I'll give the context. It's the people that just rip players, coaches, and just for and just say like they're trash, no hard, all that. That's I think I mean he he mentioned about him. I think just kind of as an excuse to add the, uh, hey, look at the banners, look at me, bow down. The players was really, I think, the more impactful statement. Some people everywhere, social media, really, I don't know, but they feel like it's perfectly fine to just absolutely destroy people, for uh, Duke players for, I don't know. I, I honestly don't get it. But I don't. But I understand why he would make the statement he said. I just think it's amusing that he added the look at the uh, look at the banners after that. Bow down. But let's start out with uh, Virginia. Beginning in Tony Bennett's third season, 2012, the
the last 11 Duke-UVA games have been decided by 10 or less points. Four of the last six games have been decided by one or two. That's pretty wild. So Virginia won 52-50 in a rousing game. Got over 100 total. I mean, you think about that, Duke, they just played a game where both teams scored over 100, double OT, a lot of points, and then a game where the combined score barely qualifies over 100. So it was uh, five ties, 14 lead changes, largest uh, lead by either team, Duke by seven, with 14.53 left. Duke actually led uh, longer. They led for 18.59, UVA led for uh, 14.52, and the game was tied for six minutes and nine seconds. The the major reaction from the game is, where's the third score? Because you look at the made field goals, guys, and you have uh, for guys with two-plus made field goals. Vern shot 6 of 11, Trey shot 6 of 14, Javin shot 2 of 5. All others were 4 of 29, not great. From 3, Trey shot 3 of 5, Vern 1 of 1, of one and others were 0 of 11. Not great. So the final play, it's almost like uh, the Kansas game back in 2018 that I always say like I never want to think about or talk about, yet I, for some reason, mention more than I would like to. Uh, is it like most will, will, will say, we'll always come back to the Wendell, the Wendell Carter block charge call and the Grayson Allen toilet bowl rim out. For me, what, what really upset me about the game was all the other stuff. And that's kind of the Wake Forest, what I went through last episode, in terms of, I get it. I get why everyone was so upset about the 81 seconds and what happened during that time period, but it should never have gotten to that point. And I'll explain why with more context when I talk about NC State. The Virginia, the, the in terms of how it ended with Vern pump faking getting blocked by... Uh, Huff, as Dick Vitale says, Huff make him puff. That that was that, that's just I don't understand how he comes up with that stuff. Just call him like Huff Daddy. How like isn't that just easier? But uh, make him puff. Weird. So I mean, yeah, that's just the final play basketball stuff. Although I do wonder if Vern's pump fake. I mean, I would obviously much rather him just go up strong and live with the results. I wonder because NC State. That's one of the more physical games on offense I've seen him play. And if that lit a fire under uh, under Vern, as I kind of jokingly refer to as the BFG sometimes, big friendly giant, that can only be a good thing. So I, I wouldn't make too big a deal about that final play. It's just it's basketball stuff. It happens. And as we've seen with Duke, Virginia, like it can be decided one way or another on the last play in uh, many different ways. I think many remember the Grayson Allen. What, what did he, uh, he traveled and he got fouled. So, hey, which one was it? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, if, if Vern makes that shot, despite everything, Duke comes out with a win on the road against a, a much improved UVA team from the beginning of the season. And we're thinking about Hey, this team kind of they 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 rebounded from the Wake Forest game with a huge win. And let's move forward. Let's get revenge against NC State, but instead, the 3 out of 4 losses, everything's wrong. Duke sucks. Fire everyone. Expel the players. So, let's look a little closer at the game. Why did it happen? The I mean, the big key for me that stood out more than anything was a lineup was one single lineup. I I talk about often how I want fluid adjustments within the game, game to game throughout the season. But if you find something, I'm not sure why you would go away from it. If it's working, I'm not saying stick with it the whole time. I'm saying never go back to it. Trey Jones, Cassius Stanley, Wendell Moore, Javon Deloria, Vernon Carey lineup. 
if you, I mean, if you just really concentrate on that, it becomes crazier and crazier the more you think about it. And that's why you can look at these games and find things that are more than just soft narratives that are used so so often that you can actually point to and say that could have made a difference. The Cassius thing in the NC State game. Like, what was the deal with that? Wake Forest, the, de- the post-defense. Like, it made no sense to me. So, I mean, that's what really people who care about the basketball aspect of these games, that's what should stick out. And if it doesn't, hopefully I can help kind of present that option in your mind in terms of how impactful it could have been. The the Cassius, Trey, Wendell, Jav, and Vern lineup, in nine possessions, Duke was... A lot better on offense, a lot better on defense. They they uh, they only played for about a minute in the first half, but they, they opened the lineup. They opened the second half with that lineup. That's what Coach K chose to go with. So from 20 minutes to 15-19, started out tied 25 up, and Duke outscored UVA 8-3 to during that period. The only UVA bucket was uh, Kihai Clark's second chance three-pointer three after after Javin managed to blow a dunk on the other end in transition. Yeah, every, it, se- it seemed like everything was going pretty well there. In the paint, I mean the entire game, Duke scored 24 points in the paint. Eight of those came in that, uh, in that first kind of portion of the second half before the first media timeout. I believe it was the first four minutes and 41 seconds in nine total possessions. And that actually, the nine total possessions includes the minute they played in the first half. And then you add another two paint points right there. So in nine, in nine possessions, that lineup had 10 paint points. In Duke's other 54 possessions, there's a total of uh, 14 points in the paint in 54 possessions. It's pretty impactful, right? I mean, out of Duke's seven blocks, three occurred in that first 441 of the second half. At the eight steals, two occurred in the first 441. So what they were able to do is just something they couldn't do the rest of the game. Let's look at UVA's three-point field goals. They were three of ten for the game. But one of four in that first 441 of the second half. They were shooting more than usual. Why? Hey, Duke has two bigs down low. And and Duke, they had no three-point field goals during that first period, period of time. And I think what what helped that out was having two bigs and with Cassius, not having to uh, always worry about helping out with the defensive rebounding. He's great helping out on the glass, but that allowed him to leak out for a transition possession and fast break points which Duke could not get. And that's something, when when I go down, I mean, this is the big key. And with Wake Forest, I kind of, for, I don't know, for some reason, maybe dramatic suspense or whatever, I kind of waited to, uh, I went through some other stuff before I went to the main factor. This is the main factor, and let's just get to it immediately. It allowed Duke to get out and run with against Virginia. It's damn near impossible. Impossible, and even coming back from that under 16, uh, Trey missed a jumper, and Vern slammed at home for two more points because they were st- they were still that energy. Even though Javin had just sat, there's still that energy, so they got two more pain points. But from that point on, Duke attempted 18 field goals. Half of those field goals, half of those shots, were threes. At one point, Duke attempted eight of their 12 field goals from deep. And from that point on, UVA outscored Duke 14. To two in the paint. So why? Why? I mean, that's the thing. The big question is why did K permanently have Goldwire in there instead of Javin? I understand Goldwire is very trusted, but K showed he was willing to sit a trusted player against Boston College when he had Cassius on the bench and Goldwire in there for the last ten minutes. That was actually a game in which. Uh, I'll mention more because it relates to State, but Joey Baker, he played a big role in that game. So it's not like I'm saying that Duke had go- should have gone with that lineup for the entire second half. I still genuinely support 
the kind like I, I want it to kind of flow. I want it to be fluid. I want I want him to keep trying different things. Him meaning K, it, with the lineups. I don't want it to become stagnant. But to have a lineup do so well, and not just random, because small samples, you can attribute it to different things. With this, you can kind of tell that like even like Vern was able to get out and run because Javin was in there to rebound. And I talked about the blocks and the steals. Like It affected Virginia. Virginia doesn't have a lot of inside guys who can really do damage against Vern... I mean, with Javin, I think uh, Huff, it's that same type of skill set. But, and Diakite is strong, but he's not Vern. So I just think it gave Duke an advantage. And when Duke went a bit smaller, and uh, they went back to just kind of being, being uh, switching on everything inside. I mean, Cash has got stuck on... Diakite a couple times down the stretch with, with some post-ups, and it was just brutal. So I'm just not sure why Kane never went back to that lineup. That's the, that's what I want to get across. Why not try it again? I don't know. I don't know. All right, so uh, what, what other keys were there? Not converting turnovers into points. Live ball turnovers into transition. Really anything into transition. Uh, Duke's transition was 11 possessions, 8 points, 3 for 9 field goals. Not only is that bad in terms of converting, but they weren't even really able to get out and run on much. I mean, they actually, I talk about how Duke is not able to turn teams over anymore. It completely stopped after uh, that Louisville. They did versus Virginia. I think it was like a 22% uh, turnover rate. And, it, and that's not an easy thing to do, but I really want to credit Virginia's transition defense, even like the fact that the way they would rotate back prevented it from even becoming transition, really. Duke just couldn't do anything. They, like they, even with the live ball steals, they, they would get it and just not be able to find a way to kind of pick up the pace. And when Duke's, in, when Duke's stuck in the half-court offense... Then it gets stagnant, it gets vanilla, it gets predictable. And that's when it really becomes striking how limited they are. They need to have energy. Once they get energy, then all of a sudden everything starts working. It becomes symbiotic, offense to defense, defense to offense. But otherwise, the ener- when the energy kind of starts, I don't know, flatlining... It's tough. So there is not one thing that you can say each game that'll do it. It's just finding out what it is. So that's why a game like Wake Forest, where it was just, as I said the last episode, kind of trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results, that's the definition of crazy. And that's what kept happening. With Virginia, you saw how good that lineup was to start at the second half. And Goldwire did not start out the second half. So after that lineup got the score from 25 up to, uh, I think, 33-28 Duke, then Goldwire came in, and Goldwire played the rest of the half. And this isn't anything negative on Goldwire. It's just, again, why I don't understand why you would not even try for one second the lineup that did the best in the game. It was such a good matchup against this specific team. It's not even saying that lineup will be great against everyone. But against this team, that that night, it seemed like it should, be, it should have been given more opportunities. All right, so another key, not that anyone was really doing much scoring at all, but Duke, just, Duke got just 10 from the bench, and it, it just kind of keeps on going with the year-long correlation of the worst offensive efficiency games matching up with games where you get below 20 from the bench. Right now, if you take the, uh, the 13 games from each category, 11 match up. So there have been 13 games where the bench has scored less than 20, and th- the 13 lowest uh, offensive efficiency games for Duke 
on each category, 11 out of the 13 match up. That correlates pretty well. But at the same time, it's Virginia. They got, I mean, they got 50 total. So it's hard to score 20 when it's 50 total. All right, chucking in the second half. I mentioned how Duke, they got, they got three-point happy. They got very, and that's when they struggle. The whole season, I've said like I I want them to almost work three pointers the same way. Not these days in the NFL. The NFL is throw throw throw, but it used to be kind of use the run to open up the uh, the pass and the play action. That's what I thought Duke could do with the three pointer, uh, instead of just I mean what they did chucking it at at the end. Didn't work. I mean, half-court catch-and-shoot, 3 of 13 for the game. Half-court dribble jumper, 1 of 10. That's what Virginia wants you to do. You're going to have to beat them with solid team play, and you can't just try to ISO unless you are otherworldly. I mean, That's why I say those Duke games last season, it was an outlier. It's going to be tough. I mean, the score of this game, it was a little lower than typical games b- uh, between Duke and Virginia, but not by much. Usually it's like maybe 10 more points for each team. This was never going to be a game that was aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> uh, so Duke was 7 of 23 at the rim on non-dunks. And uh, they, they weren't uh, kind of doing so well even on dunks. They were like 2 of 3 with the javin. Blown dunk, but uh, yeah, I mean, 7 of 23, that's another thing. I mean, these are not new details with this team where Duke has struggled at the rim this season when it's not dunks. That it's It has been a long-lasting type of issue, and it really shown its, its ugly face against Virginia. So that that's something where I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of trying to ISO against Virginia driving right into traffic. And yeah, it's at the rim, but it's not it's it, just because it's at the rim doesn't mean it's a high efficiency shot. It just means it's close. There could be three people right there. I mean, that that could be why Huff Daddy. He uh if you actually Duke the most uh, times they've gotten blocked in a game this season was against Georgetown. Uh, well, besides uh, Virginia, um, Georgetown twelve blocks, Huff Daddy by himself, ten blocks. He had himself a day, and uh, along with uh, two crazy dunks, which uh, he he had a uh, he had a highlight dunk last year. I mean, I mean, he him and um, Devin Vassell, those are my two guys that I said would compete for the most improved player in the ACC award. And while Huff has been a bit more up and down than I expected and I don't think is in contention for the most improved, I still think he has shown a ton of ability and potential of, I mean, next season could be really dangerous. A worrisome trending key from game to game is the bad communication on defensive switches, along with just switching too easily. I mean that is just at this point in the season, it's it's got it's got to be better. Like I, I'm just wondering why it, why the communication issues, because there's always going to be issues at times, but talking at this point should not be one of them. That's some that's a bit head scratching. So I'm not sure what's causing that. Especially considering Matthew Hurt is not even really among the guys who's involved a lot if he's sitting on the bench. Yeah, that need that needs to be fixed. And just saying that, I mean that's one of those things where I'd probably be annoyed if someone just said, Yeah, that's bad. It needs to be better. But I mean talking at this point in the season, I think that's that's the reason why Justin Robinson his impact is so much more than even what you really, even what you see in terms of whatever he can do to score, whatever he can do to rebound, block shots. The communication, I think that is what Justin Robinson can bring as much as anything else, if not more. I think that pretty much sums up UVA. When I always talk about how 
you need to get some kind of, I always hesitate to say free points, but sort of bonus points. I mean, whatever, however it comes, second chance, transition, three-pointers, free throws, those types of points. They didn't get any of them. I mean, even second chance, like Duke got seven, fast break. Duke got five, bench. Duke got ten. It's it, this isn't making it easier. So when you're forced to just kind of grind it out in half court against Virginia, they've got you right where they want you. And I know some people don't like Virginia. I think they are great, and I think it helps to face off against a team that's just different. You never know what you're going to face in the NCAA tournament or any time. You'd like to. You'd like to feel like you have a team that can succeed no matter who you're going up against and will adapt within the game to whoever you're going up against if plan A isn't going well enough. I do want to make one point, though, in terms of a specific play. Cassius. And that was one of the early plays in the second half. A pass to uh, Javin out of pick and roll, rolling to the rim. And uh, I think Javin slipped. Uh, cause Duke really, <laughs> Javin rarely actually sets, um, a, a screen. It'll always be that kind of quick slip, but anyway, either way, it's the same thing. Oh, it's not the same thing, but it's the same idea of the point guard or the ball handler giving, giving the, giving the pass to, uh, the guy who slips or rolls. And that's something which Trey just, I, I'm not sure what he has not really been good at throughout the season mostly because he has he just doesn't try I don't know if he doesn't see but Javin that I think is his best feature his ability to kind of slip off the high screen and finish close to the rim like the whole feeding Javin in the post thing like that needs to stop like I don't know what people expect what positive could come out of it but in terms of Javin like that's something that I mean I remember Towards the later part of uh, last season, even when like Zion was out, that's something which became a thing with R.J. Barrett to Javin. Even like like against Michigan State, that was one of the major positives in half-court offense. And I thought that could be really lethal this season. But Trey just, for some reason, he either sees it too late or just doesn't trust it or something. But that's, what, that's something with, with uh, Cassius... At above the break, he actually started that one at the left wing. He, I, I've wanted him to get more chances above the break with some high screens because too often it's just ISO with him. And with Cassius, he's such a straight line driver that I mean, once he gets going, I mean, head down, it kind of it's tunnel vision, and, and it's tough in the first place to pass out of ISO. So, I think I would love him to get more chances really working with more high screen, side screens, all kinds of stuff. And I think that could be a, a really useful tandem with him and Javin, even with him and Vern. And I think Trey, he struggles a bit in that area. Trey, he is, I always call him transition Trey, great passer in transition. But I'm not sure how much his passing makes other guys better in half court. He almost seems more a scoring point guard in half court, and while kind of the the lines have been blurred in terms of what's a scoring point guard, what's a pass first point guard, it's all the same these days. But at the same time, like he doesn't create too much for others. I'm not saying he never does. Um, and there's absolutely great plays to uh, show that he has the ability to, and hopefully he can st- he can kind of keep improving that area. But I would just say use the guys who it's more natural right now. More often. And I'm not even saying that Cassius, it's, it's always going to be that way. But I, I've liked what I've seen in the very few times that he actually is giving given a chance to be a playmaker with more space. Because Trey wasn't up top kind of preventing Cassius from using that area. Or maybe there would have been another defender around there to kind of prevent Cassius from uh, making a move and going to jab. And so... Who knows, but it's just something, when I see something that works, I just kind of, my, my the the wheels in my head start turning, and I, I just imagine the possibilities of how you can do it more. 
to reach that ceiling. So Kay, he defended Duke after the game in terms of he thought Duke, they, play, they played a great game, great defensive effort. And for me, I don't care whether it was a mind game or not. I actually, uh, I would agree. I would agree with him. I think the Virginia game, it's a very different type of game. And I think the defensive effort was was there. There was, as I mentioned, major issues at times in the, in the beginning of the game with some uh, defensive rotations and switches. But overall, they were intense and they were physical. And they matched Virginia's intensity. I mean, Virginia's, they're always going to be in the right place at the right time. You just got to beat them. So I just it's one of those things where I wonder what would have happened if Kay had tried that lineup again after the first couple minutes of the second half. All right, on to NC State. Did you hear the Duke played zone? It's it's a rumor going around. My sources tell me the Duke played a bit of zone. <laughs> so Duke beat uh, State eighty-eight to sixty-nine, and it was about as different a game from Virginia as as you could possibly imagine. And uh, Virginia, what, what, how many points did I say they scored in transition? Three? Well, let, me, let me quickly uh, go back and see how many they scored in transition. No, they scored eight, shooting three, three of nine. In 11 possessions, eight, eight points, three of nine. Let's compare that to uh, NC State. NC State, 22 possessions, 31 points, 12 of 18 field goals. Hmm, just a bit difference, right? And you want to know the interesting thing is they weren't turning NC State over. Duke still struggles to turn teams over. I mean, the live ball is a bit that was a bit higher percentage, but even so, it wasn't like crazy. They were just getting out and running, and and what allowed that to happen is just the the zone. I, I say like they just need some to be something to spark this team. I feel like that you can always find something, but if you just let it kind of ride with whatever's happening. That's not the way that's not the way to treat these teams, which is why I get really frustrated when when K just goes off on the team and says, says like either they're not listening or they're not trying or blah blah blah. I if I, if I don't see K really try anything different himself, like what is he doing? Maybe he's doing a lot that I can't see. Maybe he's doing a lot mentally, but basketball I feel like as a coach, there should be aspects of the game where you can physically see it too. A factor I haven't seen, I haven't read, and I looked for it, and it doesn't make sense to me. But what does with Duke coverage in general? Where was the talk about Boston College? I mean, that was another game. I mean, besides the fact that uh, Case said, I mean, that was like he went on this crazy rant about how, like, they deserve what's coming if they don't listen to me. Like, they, they stunk if they don't listen to me. And I'm just like, what? But I, And that was the same game where he talked about how, like, overshooting the basket or something. And also about how Duke's 2-2-1 press, it wasn't a three-quarter court. It, it was very different. It was a, a two-thirds court. So, yeah, I mean, that, like, like, that really needs to be kind of whatever. Bottom line, though. Duke played zoning that game. That's how they beat Boston College. They they didn't play zone for the first uh, 33 minutes. But hey, about those last seven minutes, I think it started off because Vern was in foul trouble. So they just kind of wanted to keep him on the floor in the best way for him to not pick up fouls. But at the same time, Boston College, I think they were up by like, a couple points, and they were on a run. They were doing well. Duke started to zone him, and along with that uh, press, it bothered Boston College, and that's what allowed Duke to get on a quick run at the end of the game when the points were not easy to come by, and they pulled away. That got them to win. It's the only game this season, other than State, where they've played over, I think, like three possessions of zone. So why not talk about that? Why, why is there this whole theme about how they haven't played zone? Like, it worked versus Boston College. That got them a win. Do people not remember? And it worked well. 
So this wasn't out of nowhere. It wasn't Kay using some mystical, magical strategy against NC State. It was almost obvious because Markel Johnson was just working the screens and Vern couldn't stick with him. Vern, he's been taking bad angles recently. I think it's the angles more than anything else that he's taking, which is just brutal. And the zone, it was it was a good idea. Like, using it to proclaim him some savant after the Wake Forest game, when I went through the different aspects, which, like, why... Couldn't have, have tried this. Why couldn't he have tried that? Whether it was fronting the post. I absolutely mentioned zone. You could you could definitely zone. Olivier Saar was, at, was destroying Duke. It doesn't always have to be based on high screens. And, uh, and a, a point guard really taking advantage of a big off of high screens. Zones can help in other ways. So to give him so much credit for doing it versus NC State. He deserves credit, but at the same time, he like they used it versus Boston College, so it wasn't out of nowhere, and he didn't do anything to adapt versus Wake, so why didn't he try it then? Why didn't he try something different? This is what coaches should do. They should try different aspects instead of just letting things ride and then blaming the players, or at least publicly blaming the players, but either way, that zone... It worked. How good was the zone? To be honest, if I'm looking at it realistically, I'm not sure how good it was. And I'm not sure if it's something that Duke can kind of just keep sticking in. But at least it gives them an option. At least it gives them an option. I mean, even possession by possession, if they can switch back and forth. It makes your opponent think. I mean, that's the key with this team. Again, just whatever can get them energy. Whatever can get them energized. Whatever can get them out and running. I mean, it's huge. You do not want them stuck in half court. Because with all the talk about how Duke is, like, or what's Cassius Stanley, Cassius got his groove back, had some monster dunks, and had some great offensive rebounds, second chance points. But... How was he in the half court when it was like truly half court? He drew some fouls, but I mean, it's still, it's the same thing. Like, so I think energy, I think NC State was just knocked back a little by the zone. They kind of didn't know how to handle it. I mean, there were some open shots there. But in terms of the offense, the offensive issues and the defensive issues, they still exist in the same exact ways as they did before. But. What I liked is just at least Coach K was willing to do something. But I want that every game. And maybe I just want too much. Maybe it's all about me. Maybe I'm a narcissist. Who knows? I mean, it worked. It worked, and that's what matters. It worked for this team, and they didn't just find a way. They found, they found a way that really allowed them to play their style, to get out and run. And that's something that NC State likes to do too, but it was just... They were just really blown, blown out of the uh, out of the gym right there. Because uh, all right, let's look at let's see here. It was thirty to twenty five state with under four minutes, uh, with three fifty seven left at the under four minute media timeout, and even at twenty three twenty one, it felt like fools go. Excuse me, at uh, the under eight, it felt like fools goal to even be that close, especially when Duke relies on threes. For the majority of their points, as was the case with, I think, Justin Robinson. He had two made threes. Trey, Trey had one. Goldwire had one. I mean, what kept Duke in it, in the first half, they had 10 offensive rebounds, which is a crazy number. And yet, they somehow almost managed to cancel that out entirely with nine turnovers. The big thing was the bench, because those starters, they weren't providing much. And Kay, for some reason, went with... Uh, you know, with Joey Baker and Javin Deloria, he almost has a tendency to kind of react one game later. It was like a weird reaction to the Virginia game to start them. But I mean, Baker, I think he made a silly he, he made a silly foul like early in the game, and he was taken out after that. I think he came in for like a minute later. But I don't know the the weird rotations with Baker. It it continues. It really continues, and it's tough. 
to really understand exactly where K is coming from with that because I think with Baker, he's going to be someone, when I talk about skill sets, I don't think Baker, I think it's possible to use Baker's skill set a little more, forcing him, not forcing him, but almost expecting him to really create off the dribble. I'm not sure he can, I mean, he can do it, but it's not as natural. I'll talk about that the next time. I just think Baker could be used a lot more off screens to fit his skill set more because otherwise it's just, it's a lot of pressure having got, I mean, it's like, it's unfair comparison, but giving the ball to JJ and saying, hey, JJ, just ISO. It's like, what? Yeah, at that at that point in time when I, when I was talking about with the under four, State was shooting 56.5%. Duke was shooting 30%. And yet they were only down like, like seven, and it got to be like the the shooting percentages pretty much stay the same. And Duke was down like four with under a minute left, and it almost didn't even make sense. At that, so the under four timeout, thirty two twenty five points in the paint, twenty to six state, fast break points six zero state, points off turnover seven to uh, two state. But the bench sixteen to five Duke, offensive rebounds nine nine zero Duke, and second chance points five zero Duke. Right there, because you look at those stats and how they ended up, like all of those stats. I mean, even like points in the paint, just completely reversed. Completely. So, all right, here we go. I found it. All right, so let's see. Points in the paint, as I said, started out 20 to 6. Well, it ended up 46 to 36 Duke. Second chance points, 15-8 uh, Duke. Fast break. I, I mentioned State was up 6-0. Duke ended up 25-6. to Yeah, so everything switched around. They, they locked down on defense. I don't even know if it's locked down. I think State was just kind of taken back. They switched to man at five minutes. C.J. Bryce made a three above the break on the first possession where Goldwire kind of he drifted down too low. But the last eight possessions of the first half, only four points on one of five field goals. And then beginning at the under-16 timeout at 15-35 with NC State up 46-44. That's when Duke went on a 33-13 run in about nine minutes with just some of the most absurd offensive stats I've seen in a while for a period of time. I mean, 17 possessions, 33 points, 11 of 15 field goals. One of three from three, so they weren't they weren't even like relying on that. Ten of thirteen free throws, four offensive rebounds. So I said Duke only missed four field goals. Well, they got four offensive rebounds. Well, I guess they could have gotten him off the three missed free throws as well. But hey, uh, six assists, three blocks, two steals. I mean the one point nine four one points per possession. That's crazy. Even adding it on to some like. From uh, the under 16, adding it on a li- uh, like five more possessions, 22 possessions, 41 points. Then all the way till the end of the game, 25 possessions, 45 points. Still 1.8 points per possession. Duke outscored NC State 63 to 40 while in zone. And combined with the 31 of 88 points in transition, that's just wild. So yeah, I mean, I mean that sums up the zone. Just kind of took took State back and. Uh, Duke, they got energized, they, and there was a lot of really attacking the basket. All like Duke shot a ton from outside in the first half. Second half, completely different. Always going to the basket, always attacking, and it, and it just comes down to energy. It really, the guys were really just they they were moving without the ball better. They it was just, you can see the spark. You gotta find something which just injects the energy into the guys. And the bench with 38 bench points, 24 in the first half. It's the third highest of the season behind Central Arkansas and Wofford. The transition without needing turnovers. Justin Robinson, who airballed two three-pointers against Wake Forest. And I even mentioned that uh, in the last app, if he can actually pose a threat from outside, hey, maybe Duke could go five-out lineups when Vern needs a rest or when he's in foul trouble. And just give another look. And then Robinson makes two three-pointers against Wake. And very necessary. Uh, two three-pointers against State. Very necessary when Duke needed him the most. Also dunked home 
a uh, a Wendell Moore. I don't know what he's doing half the time near the rim. It's it's very awkward at times, but uh, I love I love Wendell. It's just very interesting. It's like an adventure. But he dunked home a uh, a, a Wendell Moore uh, miss off of the uh, rim, and it's just. He's always there. He's always in the right place, and just the talking. I mentioned last time how Kay called him the best talker on Duke on defense. He said that at the beginning of the season, and it's it's tough to know exactly how how good he is just from watching on TV, but it seems like he is doing a pretty good job. That's all I can say about that. Justin Robinson, just major props to him, and it's funny, uh, my, my, my buddy Ray, I, uh, I I sent him a text about Justin Robinson saying, here's my hot take, Justin Robinson's emergence is a combo of 1996 Stan Brunson, 2010 Brian Zubek, and 2009 Elliot Williams, despite being nothing like any of the three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it really. There's no comparison in terms of like the skill sets or anything. I still think he he's like a uh, he. I mean, he, he just looks like Tayshawn Prince out there. I'm not saying he's Tayshawn Prince, but that's the skill set. I'm, but I'm, I was thinking about more just like the unlikelihood. I mean, because of course you got the sudden emergence as a uh, upperclassman like Brian Zubek, or the sudden mer- emergence in general like Elliot Williams, and then he is a walk on. So that's why my boy Stan Brunson, at the end of 96, doing his thing. But Robinson, he's obviously a very different player, a very different team. And just props to him for doing his thing. And uh, ESPN, you don't need to show David, you don't need to show his father every single time Justin does anything. I think everyone knows by now, David Robinson is Justin Robinson's father. If you didn't know, I'm officially reporting that. One thing which I don't think it could... I sure hope it didn't go under the radar. The second half, that's the most physical I've seen Vern, especially on offense, really getting position. I mean, there's a play when Cash, like he, Cash just had the ball on the left, on the left wing, and there was just no way he was not going to be able to get the ball to Vern because Vern just, he was a beast getting position. And that's what I want to see from that dude. Vern, an angry Vern is a good Vern. Yeah, I hope I hope that lasts, not just be kind of a random thing. All right, so a couple things to I don't know. I always hesitate to say be worried about, but some things which just worth noticing. I mean, Cassius he still is struggling at the rim in half court on non dunks. So when it's not out in transition, I mean, there's still I I would like to see him get more action. He still has a tendency to have tunnel vision. I do think he's improving a little bit, but I'll talk more about that with his skill set. Uh, Javin, he has a mind-numbing tendency to come out too far on the back of the two-two-one press. I mean, it's only been twice, but when it's once a game in the last two games, I mean, I can't lie. It's a bit, it's a bit annoying, but uh, yeah, just don't come out too far. I mean, that's really all there is to it. Uh, just kind of be, it's almost like O'Connell being backdoored all the time. Just have some awareness of what's going on around you. Easier said than done. Matthew Hurt, the full Matthew Hurt experience of uh, really get it, getting an offensive rebound, being physical, scoring inside at 140. Everyone's pumped, everyone's loud, everyone, everyone, everyone's happy. Matthew Hurt, physical. And then the ensuing defensive possession lets up, a, lets up a defensive rebound and fouls, which is the second he's out of the game. I mean, that's the full Matthew Hurt experience right there. I just, it, I can't wait till he just gets a, gets stronger this offseason. That's all there really is to it. Just gets on a workout plan because imagine this same type of skill set. Just more bulk with more physicality plus more awareness knowing, knowing his role. I mean, I, I, I hope he comes back. I'm not even thinking about st- that, that stuff right now. But, yeah, I mean, just a more confident player within the system, that would be fantastic to have, along with somebody who can match up who's not a constant target on defense. My favorite player of the game was uh, Justin Robinson to Jordan Goldwire at 740, where I think it was a uh, transition uh, Robinson gets down low, I think it is doubled, and just kind of scoops it up to Goldwire, 
who hits this just gorgeous teardrop. It's just like, what? Goldwire. Should have gone to Towson. Anyway. Uh, I th- the thing is, they're running off of defensive rebounds a lot now. It was similar to earlier this season when they struggled actually doing that because they were taking so many threes. Now they're taking it more aggressively to the rim. I think that that's a big positive. The big story is obviously Justin Robinson right now in terms of just that sudden emergence. And hopefully he keeps it going. There is a sense, it's like NC State, I talked about before, the last time they played NC State, about how not many teams have those two guards in the backcourt with him and Daniels who can kind of weave in and out of uh, ice in different situations like NC State can, and it just burned Duke both times with the first game being a lot more just kind of getting the matchups they wanted, and then they would ISO this. They, it was a lot more pick and roll. And Virginia pick and roll Duke too. So that's something where Duke was really pretty trustworthy on that. And it can be a little worrisome as you get later into the season. It's still, or not still, it becomes an issue. But hey, maybe if Duke can kind of switch into his own for a couple possessions just to kind of recover and then maybe reset and improve on the pick and roll after that because uh, who knows, maybe like kind of snowballs in a way when you have a couple of tough possessions. So getting into zone and kind of reconfiguring might help in that sense. It always comes back to my general point of just keep finding different combos of what works. And then when you find something, like the UVA lineup, don't just abandon it forever. You Like, yeah, rest guys, switch, switch in and out, kind of keep it fluid, but don't just completely abandon it. I don't see what the point is there. And NC State, what they do with the zone, I feel like there's going to be an aspect similar to that, not necessarily similar to zone, but just something that can get this team energized. And it, re- and it just makes you think about that weight game. And, sh- and the weight game, I kept saying, where's the plan B? Where's the plan B? There wasn't a plan B. It was kind of <laughs> letting Duke sink and then blaming them after the game. I, I still, uh, Olivier Saar, he was going up against the same defense and the same Matthew Hurt most every possession, and nothing changed. NC State, there's your blueprint. Not exactly the way it happened, but the way you, you tried something new. And that's what matters. You tried something new. I want to I see that on offense, too. I want to see creativity because if Duke's not getting out and running, and I think NC State, the way they were taken aback by the zone, it allowed Duke to get that momentum. That's not going to happen with, with every team. You're going to have to find a way to find momentum in a different way. Because if Duke's stuck in that half court, I don't think they, that all, all of a sudden like Duke found this like new life and, they, and all of a sudden they know how to uh, run the perfect half court offense. I think Duke did so well because they didn't have to run much half court offense. Even some that statistically uh, kind of entered in as half court it's still almost like secondary, it's secondary transition or secondary break. I mean, it's, it's still kind of everyone just is in the role of, when, of, of how you're doing it on a transition break. So they need to still find a way. When it gets, when it gets slowed down into half-court offense, that's still the concern. I don't think State changed any of that. So while these games were interesting, I think it's still interesting in the in the way of how is Duke going to adjust each game rather than have they figured it out or have they not figured it out because I think that's too often the major takeaway. It's just if they won, they figured it out. If they lost, they, they have not figured it out. And that's not, I don't think that's what this team is about right now. As I said before, they're about to play the most uh, dangerous 13 and 17 team or whatever in the history of the world right now. I can't lie. I'm a little nervous. A little nervous. 
But should be a good one. I mean, I don't know how you kind of top the last game, even though I think if we're being honest, the last game wasn't crazy uh, high level. It was just the ending, or the two endings, and the way the dude came back. Oof. I think that's what kind of made it what it was. So if, they, if there can be some high intensity lasting the whole game, I mean, this could be a special contest between, I mean, 13 and 17. This is not that. I, I don't even care what the record is. I said that before last game. This is a different kind of rivalry. Everyone knows that. I'm not telling, I'm not breaking news to anyone. I will, uh, the next podcast I do will obviously be about North Carolina. It'll also go into the skill sets and what exactly is the issue with not being able to find a reliable third scorer. And we'll talk about Wendell more. I didn't talk about him much, but he obviously has uh, an impact on these games, a huge impact. Until then, again, email DukeBasketballCorner at gmail. If you if you want to help out and hang out with me for podcasts during the postseason, if nothing else, it'll just kind of give me the ability to provide everyone the best podcast possible. Support the Duke Basketball Corner podcast. It's the only way this thing will survive. Otherwise, again, I will record something uh, like a mini app to explain further because I, I know it's not something people want to hear on these uh, regular episodes. And uh, I will I will go a little further into that as well as just kind of more context of a little bit about the history of what I've done with Duke and Cover Duke and all that stuff and why this matters to me and all and all that. So uh, Duke and uh, Duke North Carolina. After that AC tournament, I will definitely be coming out with an app before the ACC tournament. Talking about North Carolina. Hopefully they can get a win. Finish out strong. Hopefully. Hey, maybe uh, by some miracle they will get the number two seed. And uh, become co-regular season champs. Very unlikely. As I said before, I'll mention it one more time. Just in case anyone forgot. Let's see what we have here. The two scenarios that Duke would not be the number four seed. They would be number two in co-champs if they beat UNC, Boston College beats Florida State, and Louisville beats Virginia, with FSU being the number three seed. And they would be the number three seed if Duke beats UNC, Florida State beats Boston College, and Louisville beats Virginia, with Louisville being the number two seed. So, yep, that is going to be how Duke would not be the number four seed. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Rate and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast, wherever you stream it from. Contact Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail for any inquiries, questions, or even just to, I mean, if you want me to answer a question on here, I've always had that open. I stopped doing it. I stopped offering because it just, it wasn't getting enough response, but I would love to have almost a community of, of sorts where I could like eventually set up some sort of chat like Facebook or like on the internet, like a chat, like anything. I'm, I've always been willing to do and adapt to any possibility. Until next time, thanks so much for listening to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am Adam Comer and I'll be talking to you soon. Mm-hmm.